Hello and welcome to Agri-Food Matters, the podcast from the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science that covers all that matters in the world of agriculture and food. I'm Sean Duke and I'll be your host. First up today, let's hear from Julie Dowsett about who we are going to chat to for today's show. And thankfully, it's the first where we had the opportunity to meet researchers face to face. So I'm here with Judy Dowsett, our regular contributor. Judy, what's, what do we have on the agenda today? Who are we meeting? So we're going to be meeting two researchers who have a particular interest in providing healthy, sustainable food. Firstly, Dr. Saoirse Tracy. And Saoirse's work looks at maximising healthy soil um, and the interface between soil and roots. So we're also meeting Professor Lorraine Brennan, who has a particular interest in nutrition and the need to provide sustainable, nutritious food for all. Thanks. Thanks, Judy. I spoke to Dr. Saoirse Tracy at UCD Rosemont Environmental Research Station, a wonderful facility situated on lands at Belfield dating back to 1780, which were once owned by the Corbalis family of Rosemont House. I began by asking Saoirse about her background and how she got interested in studying soil as a scientist. And you might hear some wind in the background during this interview. Yeah, I grew up in Yorkshire near a place called the... I grew up in York, which is near the North Yorkshire Moors. And I was really lucky because during school we were able to go on field trips there. So that's really where my love of soil science began. There was one field trip in particular where we were on the Moors and we'd done a transect down the side of a hill and we had to soil sample at different points down this hill. And we found three different soil types. There was different soil at the top of the hill, in the middle of the hill, at the bottom of the hill. And alongside that, it determined, the soil determined the vegetation, but also the vegetation, the plants that were growing there, also changed the soil type. So that, to me, just completely blew my mind. And I was really fascinated then with the interaction between soil and plants. And I think that was really when this love of soil um, and wanting to know more about the soil, how, how, how does it grow plants, that's where flowers grow, that's where we grow food. So that's really what kicked it all off, the, the love of soil. Okay, what would you say to people, the way you've described it, soil sounds fascinating, but some people probably say, gosh, soil, that must be a boring thing to study. Well, I would tell them that over 95% of our food comes from soil. Soil, it's critical for humanity. It's at the interface of the environment. A lot of the big challenges we're facing in the future in terms of climate change or producing enough resources. Soil is central to all of this. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for soil. So I understand it might not be seen as the most sexy of subjects, but that to me just makes it more fascinating because people just literally walk all over it. They don't understand the amazing environment that's underneath there. So I'm my main aim and passion is to try and convey how exciting soil is to the students and get them excited about soil because it is literally... Um, we're so dependent on soil so that's why I want more people to understand it and appreciate and respect soil. And before we talk just about your own research then soil generally in the world I think it's under pressure isn't it for different climate reasons etc? Yeah in terms of how people are looking after soils there's still a lot of examples of unsustainable soil practices so there's big missions on at the moment in terms of looking after our soil to make sure that we can secure food security for for future generations so that I, I guess some examples of unsustainable practices would be if you've heard of soil erosion or soil compaction we're losing a lot of the function so soil has these key functions that we require as humans and if we don't look after the soil then we 
we don't really get those functions so that's why we have to we have to take care of the soil basically probably a little bit better than we're doing so your your own specific area then maybe tell me about that so i look at how plant roots interact with the soil so plant roots have been described as the hidden half my aim of my research is really to get a better understanding of what's going on below ground in the future we're moving into potentially a lower input agricultural system we might have less irrigation we can apply fertilizers might be becoming more scarce there might be certain chemicals that we used to apply we can no longer apply and in terms of crop yields we're starting to see crop yields leveling off so we need to find a way to maybe maximize these crop yields and essentially roots have been largely ignored in terms of the crop breeding initiatives but we know that that's what roots are where plants take up water it's where they take up nutrients so if we are facing or using lower input agricultural systems potentially if we can breed better root systems maybe they've got deeper roots or they can take up water better they're more resilient maybe with coping with some of these environmental stresses we might see in the future with changing weather patterns or more intense weather events that we might see in Ireland then potentially that's going to be a way forward in terms of maximizing sustainability and breeding these better not not well, using up resources maybe the way we are and and uh, do, we're here in Rosemont in UCD for those that don't know it just tell us briefly what is this place like what what's here so we're at Rosemont experimental research station at UCD and this is where we grow a lot of plants at UCD. It's, it's co-managed by two schools, so the School of Agriculture and Food Science and the School of Biology and Environmental Sciences. We've got big production glasshouses. We've got a containment glasshouse, polytunnels. There's the Lamb Clark Historic Irish um, Apple Orchard. But inside we have buildings here as well. There's really state-of-the-art plant phenotyping equipment. So we've got x-ray machines to look at roots in soil. We've got very fancy cameras that can do hyperspectral imaging and take lots of views of the plants and get a better understanding of how plants are functioning. And what are you working on specifically at the moment? I'm working on various projects really just to understand how plants interact with soil. Is there a nutrition part to what you do or you know, can it help in that regard? Yes, yeah, so I'm looking at how roots take up nutrients, so potentially micronutrients that if the roots are better able to take up the nutrients the plants will be better nourished one project in particular called biocrop is looking at how biofertilizers may influence crop growth and the aim of that is really to maybe have better quality grain yield so this is in barley and it's linked to the brewing industry because if we have better grain yield maybe we've got better tasting beer so it all starts with the roots i would say so if the roots are able to take up more nutrients they're potentially going to produce higher quality crops as well which is only going to be a good thing um, for the agricultural economy so the roots the roots seem to be the thing that you are very interested in. definitely it's the interface between the root system and the soil stru- soil structure this is a zone of soil that we call the rhizosphere and in certain papers so in certain like publications it's de- been described often as as the last frontier on earth potentially it's been suggested we know more about the surface of mars than the soil beneath our own feet so i'm really interested in this interface because that is where the roots are interacting with the soil they're taking up the water they're taking up the nutrients and then sustaining and growing the growing plant i believe the machinery and heavy tractors and the like can actually impact soils not always in a good way is that an issue 
Yes, in the last few decades we've seen tractor weights increasing and this is causing an issue that we call soil compaction. So essentially the soil aggregates, the, the, the soil is getting pushed together by the weight of this machinery that's on top of it and it's reducing the pore space, so these holes that we find in the soil. So there's less space for the roots to grow, for water to flow through, so soil compaction is a global issue, it's a, it's a big threat to soils. And essentially, if we're pushing the soil together, we're reducing this space where the water flows, the air flows. Essentially, the, the plumbing of the soil is getting made smaller and smaller. So it has a big impact on root growth because roots have to push harder to get through the soil. And as I've said before, we know how crucial roots are to plant growth. So if we're restricting the space they're able to explore and grow into, essentially we're restricting their ability to capture resources to feed the growing plant so soil compaction yet yeah, it's a big issue can we do anything about it yes we have some field trials at ucd lions farm where we're looking at how different tillage practices different soil management practices may reduce soil compaction we can look at how different tractor weights different tire pressures that could help soil compaction and another area could be the use of cover crops or intercropping where we specifically grow a plant with maybe thicker roots or stronger roots to, to punch holes in the ground to kind of make these what we call biopores for then subsequent crops to be able to grow into. So yeah, we've got lots of opportunities and possibilities. To lots work. of clever things you can do. And in terms of, uh, you know, making soils exciting and communicating science, then I think there's a thing called soapbox science you're involved in. Do you want to say something about that just for those that don't know about it? Yes, so this year, myself and some colleagues at the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science we're organising the Dublin version of Soapbox Science. So this is an international initiative that's run all around the world. All of these events are happening simultaneously. And essentially it's creating a soapbox for um, female and non-binary scientists. It lets scientists talk about their research. And it, it's really important, I think, for the especially for women to have these visible role models in science. So we talk to children, we talk to the general public, you'd often find these events they're just people standing up in the in the streets of Dublin talking about their science so it's great for the younger generation to see those vi visible role models in science and maybe break down the perceptions of what we consider a scientist or what a scientist might look like so that that event's crucial for that so this year it's running on the 3rd of July from 2 till 6 p.m there's going to be live streams on Facebook and YouTube if you go to the Twitter page that'll give you more details as well that's Saoirse Tracy. Next, we moved across campus to the UCD Conway Institute to meet Professor Lorraine Brennan, who works in a field called precision nutrition. I first asked Lorraine to explain what precision nutrition is for those that may not be quite sure. Well, precision nutrition is the area of trying to personalize dietary advice to individuals so that the dietary advice we give to an individual is suited to that particular person for their lifestyle at that particular time in their, in their life. So it is a real move away from giving the general one-for-all size-fits-all dietary recommendations to a more personalised approach to nutrition. And it also suggests that people are actually different. Uh, we just had a chat before here about, you know, my mother who tried to lose weight and she said, oh, I have a different metabolism. But even though we teased her, she might have been right all those years ago. 
Oh, absolutely. So what we're realising, and I guess we've started to realise this in the last five years or so, is that we all respond differently to food and our response is quite unique to, to us as an individual. So we and others have seen that if you give individuals food, they will respond exactly the same to that particular food over and over again, but they will respond very differently to that food from another individual. So for, for example, if you use a, a continuous glucose monitor and you put it on somebody's arm and you measure their glucose response to food, my response to food would be very different than your response to exactly the same food. And my response to that food will be the same next week and the week the week after. So what we say is that we have a very high inter-individual variability. So a lot of variation between individuals, but at that individual has a low variability so that I'm very similar and can reproduce myself so there's a lot of differences between people. So so that's fascinating because I think for a long time, say people who, as I mentioned, the overweight issue, um, you know, it's not necessarily that they're eating too much. It just might be that they're metabolizing things differently. Yes, and, and that's what we're trying to do in precision nutrition. Um, and what, what's starting to happen is people are trying to see if they can understand individuals and individuals' metabolism and then to try guide them to personalise advice through that that's more suited to their particular phenotype and then give them advice that works for them at that particular time. Now, maybe you could just tell us, how long has this uh, been around, personalised or precision nutrition, if we call it that? Is it a new thing or has it been around for a while? Well, well, we've been particularly interested, I guess, in the last 10 to 15 years in developing personalised nutrition or precision nutrition. And a lot of that stemmed out initially from thinking about genes and genotypes. But then more recently, it has looked at actual physiological responses to food and understanding that individuals are different and then trying to tailor that and harness that difference to give personalised advice to individuals. Because obviously our tools are different now from the 1980s, so we have things that we can use to to look at this. Oh, absolutely. So we can sequence people's genotypes really quickly now. We can take a blood sample from an individual and measure thousands of metabolites and proteins that are present in in that blood sample. And that blood sample can tell us hugely about a person's metabolism and how they're they're metabolising food and how they're um, responding to different diets and different interventions. Now you here at UCD uh, obviously you've got international collaboration and you're doing lots of fascinating projects so maybe you could tell us about your research in this general field. Yes so I guess there's there's two there's two areas that we, we I can talk about. Um, one area would be a, a project that myself and colleagues here in UCD performed back in 2015. It's a Food for Me project where we were looking at personalised nutrition. So we looked at trying performing a large randomised controlled trial across Europe to deliver personalised advice to individuals. And essentially what we found is that if you give people personalised dietary advice, it encourages them or helps them to change their dietary habits. So it facilitates a behaviour change in an individual towards a more healthy dietary dietary pattern. And the second area that we've developed is taking blood samples from individuals and looking at small molecules called metabolites in that. And these metabolites can tell us about an individual's metabolic phenotype or their metabolism. And what we've done with that is we've identified at a population level three different metabolic phenotypes or metabotypes as we call them. And we've developed algorithms then to give individuals back dietary advice based on their a combination of their blood sample and their dietary intake. And what we've done then is with colleagues in Germany, we've looked to see can these metabolic phenotypes 
identify individuals that are at in later life that are higher risk of metabolic diseases and we've found that. So what we're currently doing is to do a randomised controlled trial here in UCD and we just finished collecting the last blood sample actually yesterday where we have 100 individuals and we gave them dietary advice based on their dietary intake but also their their metabolic phenotypes, so measured from their blood samples. And what we're hoping to see is that those individuals that were randomised to the metabolic phenotype dietary advice will have a greater change in their dietary dietary intake compared to the standard dietary advice that we gave the, 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 the control group. Yeah, and of course, this gives people back uh, some autonomy as well over how they can control their health rather than just medication being an issue and something that they can resort to. Absolutely. So it, it gives it gives them their, it's, they have a measure of their metabolites, a measure of their metabolic phenotype. We can show them that if you change your diet, you can change this metabolic phenotype. And the real nice thing about it is that you can measure this over a number of a number of times, and you can see the change. And it's observing that change that helps individuals or motivates individuals to to a behaviour change. Because they know it's based on the science for them. Yeah, absolutely. It's based on the science for them and that they can see change and they can really see that actually if I do this, my 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 molecular phenotype is changing. So it's, and it's really powerful. Yeah, amazing. You mentioned the three types, the three metabolic types. So is that going to be something that we'll all be aware of over time? Which metabolic type are you? And are there unfortunate people who maybe have one piece of chocolate and then they're in trouble? <laughs> Well, eventually we might even have more than three metabolic types as as the science becomes better at measuring and we become we we, we start to you to look at larger groups of individuals. But at at the moment we have definitely a clear three types that individuals fall into. And the nice thing about that is that you you can change and we can at a very early stage say well actually you are in an at risk potential at risk group. You need to have have a lifestyle change and it can help it can help individuals how early can we do this because i've kids i think you do too but you know say at teenage years or if parents are concerned maybe their child is starting to put on a bit of weight or something like that is that how early can you possibly intervene do you think well, I, the, the science, I guess, hasn't been done at, in an earlier in an earlier age group. So we would re- work with healthy um, adults at the moment, and most of the studies we've we've been doing are in are in um, adult cohorts. But absolutely, I think then the next step, once the science gets going and and is firmly established in the adult group, it will be looking at younger age groups and trying to see then how can we change dietary behaviours and help individuals change and make a better lifestyle um, choices for them based on their own personal um, metabolism and and genotype. Now how how will this research that you're doing and it's it's early days but it's fascinating how do you think it might uh, impact on the nutritional device that people get Uh, because at the moment you know there's the the famous pyramid so how, how might that change? Well, well, it might change in, in, in the sense that you take your, your, your look at your dietary intake, you look at your, meta, your blood sample, you might look at your genotype, and it's the combination of all of those different factors that will help you, that will help then a dietitian to guide you through how, what is the best diet for you at that particular time. So at the moment, we don't use all of that personal data for dietary advice, and in the future, 
that's where we're moving towards and, and that's where the advice will come. So garnishing much more information about that individual and giving them back an advice based on, their, on, on themselves. Yeah, because I'm thinking, I mean, even after an operation, you might have specific advice on what you need to eat for the next while or, you know, it could get very specific, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It could get, it could get very specific, but um, for, for particular individuals maybe that are, that are at high risk, it could get very, very specific. And it, it, it might not need to be so specific for the general, the general population. But absolutely, it needs to be evidence-based and it will always be evidence-based given by the correct, the correct professionals to, to do that. So now I'll ask you to stare into the crystal ball and scientists hate doing this, I think some of them anyway, but it's fun. Uh, how do you think, I mean, based on where we're at and where we might go, what, what uh, kind of impacts might this have in future? Well, if I, I stare into the crystal ball and I look, I look very far ahead in the future, what I could see is that I, I walk into a supermarket and at the entrance of the supermarket I do a finger prick and I get a little blood sample from my finger, moves on to a card, there's a rapid mass spec machine beside it that analyses my metabolic phenotype. It might even take a little snip of my DNA. And then it gives me back very quickly by the time I get to do my first purchase, a shopping list. And it tells me that this is the shopping list that you need to buy for this week for your meal plan so that that's i guess where ultimately we'd like we'd like to go but wow a long time long way off for the whole family then for the whole family <laughs> that's amazing um now there are of course connections more than ever between scientists and different uh, research things that you're doing we're also talking in this podcast to dr Saoirse tracy uh she's i guess somebody who's interested in soil and maybe precision agriculture you might call it so are there connections between the two of you well, absolutely. So I guess what we've learned in the last five years is that we, we can't work in silos. So myself and my colleagues who work in the area of human nutrition, we can't just work in the area of human nutrition. We have to start talking to our colleagues that are in food science and our colleagues that are in agriculture. And this has become really, really important because we know that the the, the, that the environment is negatively impacted by the food and the food choices that we make. So anything that we develop true in, in human nutrition and precision nutrition, we have to think back then eventually to the environmental impact of that and we have to start building bridges with our colleagues in agriculture and start thinking about the whole system, so the whole food system right through from production to processing right through to human health and how we can deliver on that with minimal impact on planetary health. That was Lorraine Brennan. That's all we have for this episode, our first off Zoom, and long may that last. If you enjoyed the show, please get in touch with me, Sean Duke, at seancduke at gmail.com, or I'm on Twitter, uh, the handle is at Science Spinning. If you like the podcast, you might give it a positive review on the iTunes podcast platform, or on any of the other platforms on which it resides, including Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Castbox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Until we meet again, I'd like to wish you now good health from all of us here at Agri Food Matters. Bye bye for now.